But yeah, thank you uh, for having me this morning. Just excited to be here and uh, share the word with you guys. For uh, the scripture reading, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5. The message is making a way, and today is to hope. Um, So we'll be in Hebrews chapter 5, and then spending a good chunk of time in Hebrews chapter 6. But I want to do something a little bit different as we read the Word of God this morning. Typically, we stand uh, and we read it off of the screen or we read it off our Bibles. Um, But for me, sometimes when my eyes are open, I get distracted and I wander and I kind of miss what's being read in Scripture and wait to see what's going to be said about it. But uh, as I mentioned in the first service, the power the ultimate power and the life-changing power is not in what I have to say as much as what the Word of God says. And um, so this morning what I want to do is just read through it slowly. And as I do that, if you all just um, close your eyes and just think about and meditate on what the Word of God uh, has to say this morning before we jump into the message. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice— to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age of come, to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, It is worthless and near to being cursed, and in its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the very end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, 
in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And really meditate on this part. For we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Dear Lord, we, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you um, that it convicts us and cuts us and changes us. We thank you for the challenge and the rebuke that it brings, but also the encouragement and the comfort. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for Tim and for Josh and Josh and the elders and just all the people that lead within this church and the people that come to this church, Lord, that it is an environment that we as a family, Carrie and I and our kids, have found love and encouragement and strength and support, Lord. And uh, we thank you that we can come together in safety and talk about you and sing songs to you and dig into your word and fellowship. Let us not become what this writer talks about, dull and sluggish, needing milk. Lord, allow us to keep our eyes fixed on you, continuing to press forward in hope that you are the reward, Lord, that you are so much better than this world has to offer. Lord, and I pray this morning that what I have to say comes from you. Lord, I do know people in this crowd right now, Lord, and I know um, some people intimately, Lord, um, and closely, and we walk in life together, Lord, but I still don't know them the way that you know them. I don't know what's going on in their minds and in their hearts and in their lives the way that you do. They don't even know what's going on in their minds, their hearts, and their lives the way that you do. And that's why we need your spirit, Lord, to speak individually to each person and their situation. I can come up here and think I know what I should say from this passage, Lord, but it's only with your Holy Spirit that it will have any effect. Lord, so as this passage talks about, the rain will fall down this morning. Lord, and there are two types of fields in this passage. There's one that just produces thorns and thistles, but the other bears fruit. Lord, and I pray that as the rain falls down this morning, that it will bear fruit in our lives, that our hearts and our minds and our souls will be open to what you have to say. Lord, so change us. Let us see you more clearly. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So this passage was given to me by Tim uh, a few weeks ago. And as I started digging into it uh, last week and this week, um, you know, he wanted to, we were chatting about it, and he was talking about how this is in the Making a Way series, and today is Making a Way to Hope. And so as I'm reading through the passage, 511 of Hebrews to 620, Jesus as the hope, the anchor to our soul, the forerunner, the high priest comes at the very end of this section. It's probably about 5% of the total reading that we had this morning. And that's supposed to be the focus of today. And so I, I'm looking through it and I'm like, okay, but I, I want to stay true to the section that's been given to me. So Lord, what, what are you saying before that that leads up 
to you being our hope and struggling through the passage of how do I marry 5.11 and on to this end of chapter 6 of Jesus being the hope. And as I'm reading it and as I'm studying it and my wife was praying for me for it to all come together, I started to see how this whole beginning part is leading up to this culmination of Christ being the hope. And without 5.11 through about 6.16 or so, without that section, which is a difficult section to hear and to understand, without that section, we can't truly see how Jesus is our hope clearly. So we need to kind of dig into that a little bit this morning to then see the culmination of Jesus being this anchor to our soul, this forerunner before us. And that part of the scripture, when I read it, the Jesus being the anchor, that's the comfort part. That's the part where you just want to, you know, write it down and help it, have it help you go through the day. And sometimes we don't want to hear the difficult parts of Scripture. You know, when we're having a tough day, we don't want to hear about land producing thorns and thistles or people walking away or that we're becoming dull and needing— we don't want to hear that stuff. We want to hear the comforting parts. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training— in righteousness. So the writer of Hebrews starts out with some reproof, some correction. The NIV says rebuking when it talks about 2 Timothy 3. And what he's doing in this beginning part is he's laying out three types of people prior to getting to Christ as the anchor to our soul. The first part is those people that had a faith in Jesus but fell away. Now you notice it's the past tense. They had a faith. And in chapter 6, it talks about, but they rejected God and they walked away. Then there's the second person or group of people, and it's actually the audience of the letter of Hebrews, is those that have a faith in Jesus. But somewhere along the way, they became dull. They became sluggish, needing milk and not meat. So that's the main audience. And then he talks about Abraham that had a faith in Jesus. And he put his hope in him, waiting patiently. And I can confidently say that Abraham had a faith in Jesus. Yes, he was an Old Testament character, the father of the Israelites. Yet in John chapter 8, it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's a pretty cool thought. To think that we have our hope in Jesus today, but these Old Testament saints, especially Abraham here that Jesus talks about, their faith was in Jesus as well. He's weaved throughout the Old Testament. We can see figures of him. Where in Daniel and the lion's den, it's believed that Jesus was there with him. Um, Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah believes that Jesus was there with him. Let us, in beginning, let us create man in our image, in our likeness, all throughout. And so these men and women of old, their faith was in Jesus, and their hope was in Jesus as well. So we're going to dig into these three um, types of people a little bit, and then we will get to Jesus as being our hope. So this first section here, if you have your Bible, and it's going to come up on the screen, bam, you're on it. Um, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit. 
Hebrews chapter 4 says, for, though, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Tough spot. Tough passage. And a lot of people, when they read this section, really focus in on this part. And... uh, Calvinists really like to focus on this part to talk about perseverance of the saints. And they make this the focal point of this section of Hebrews. But it's really a side note, I believe, to really what the general part of this section is. But these types of people were subject to the influences of the Christian world. Yet at some point along the way, it was no longer enough, and they walked away. So this person, it says, had once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, and seen the power of the age to come. So they were influenced by all that the Christian world has to offer. They heard the word of God, and it brought some sort of encouragement. They saw the Spirit at work among people and saw the power. They got to be a part of the fellowship of believers. They came to the table. Yet at some point, They decided, you know what? This is not enough. I want something more. And they walked away. How many of us can name people that we know that at one point seemed like they just had this appearance of great faith, on fire faith, and then all of a sudden we see or we hear that they've fallen away? Somebody very, got emotional in the first service, and it's probably going to happen again, but Somebody very dear to my heart, this happened to. I was a, and I know a lot of people, but for this person, it was especially difficult for me. I was a youth pastor for five years down in Downingtown before I came to Parker Ford. And there was this one high school student that went on a youth retreat when she was in 10th grade under, um, sorry. Um, maybe I need to skip the story. So, um, so she came to a youth retreat, and, uh, you know, a friend had invited her, and she was just so moved by what she saw and what she heard that that weekend she put her faith in Christ. And the youth group was large. It was about 100 high school students um, down in Downingtown. And so this youth retreat was rather large as well, because it was not only them, but then they invited all of their friends. And at the end of the retreat, we're all sitting around in a, a big circle just talking about the retreat, and then we go into a time of prayer. And, you know, this brand new 10th grade believer starts praying in front of all of these people. And it was so simple, and it was so basic, and it was choppy, and it was theologically incorrect, but it was beautiful because something had happened in her heart um, that weekend. And so 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, this girl was on fire. Every morning before school at Downingtown East, she would gather a couple other friends from the youth group, and before school even started, they would pray in the stairwell for their friends. 
She would come every Sunday and every Wednesday. And if somebody was new, she was the first one to go and reach out to them and say, hey, why don't you come on in and just love on them so much? And the most amazing part of it all is that her parents were adamantly against her going to church. You don't hear about that often. But her grandfather had a really bad influence on her dad. He was a military guy and very strict and very religious and just emotionally beat down on this girl's dad when, when he was growing up. And so then when he grew up, he completely rejected anything to do with Christianity. And so when he heard that his daughter was coming to church, he was totally against it. The mom was okay about it, but she was also against it. He wouldn't drive her to church. He would never, I never even met him. Once in a while, I would meet her mom when she was dropped off. But this girl went against the grain and she said, I don't care what my parents say, I am coming to this youth group. And it was an amazing thing. And then her senior year in high school, uh, her and her best friend, I did a combined senior photo shoot for the two of them. And this girl is just so dear to my heart. She was kind of the highlight of my ministry, just seeing her change. And um, so I said to her, as we're, I don't usually get this emotional. Is it because of like the newborn? Am I, am I fe- feeling the, uh, the estrogen or whatever it's called from having a baby too? Um, <laughs> you're rubbing off on me. Um, so I said to her, I was just, I was very adamant. I was like, she, um, she wanted to go to Messiah, and her parents said, no, you're not going to a Christian college. So she chose um, a college in Hawaii. It's pretty sweet. Um, and, and I said to her, I was just like, do not fall away. Do not fall away. College is difficult. Do not fall away. And, and she knew that she was the highlight of my ministry. And so she goes out there, and I hear from her best friend who was part of the photo shoot that, it was difficult out there that her roommate um, was very promiscuous and doing drugs and that it was just a very secular, difficult environment and she was praying for strength. And she got through one semester and then that second semester uh, was wooed by the world. And it's not a prodigal situation where she still believed but was struggling. She openly said, Everything about Christ was a lie. She said, the world has so much more to offer than I knew. I wish I would have known sooner. She got lured in by everything, and now she openly says that Christ is not real, he's not true, and that people that follow after him are limited in what they're allowed to experience. And the world has so much more to offer, and she feels free now. Breaks my heart. There's one thing about somebody struggling and saying, I'm having a tough time, but still believing. But there's something so much deeper about them saying, you know what? It was all a lie and just openly rejecting. And it's tough because Hebrews chapter 6, and and Josh and I are talking about this and some other people after first service, it uses this word impossible. It is impossible for them to come back. And in John I believe it's in John. Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin. And it's just, it's my hope. And somebody came up to, you know, encourage me afterward. It's my hope that I I honestly, and I was asking, you know, Josh as well, if he knows of anybody that has proclaimed Christ 
and then openly reject Christ, like verbally saying this is a lie, if he's ever seen anybody that goes to that extent come back. I personally, in all my years of ministry, which is not in Christianity, it's not that long, so I'm only 35, but uh, I have not seen somebody come back from that. From, from wayward, yes, but from that, no. And that's just what breaks my heart. And so it says impossible, but I know with God all things are possible. But this passage here, this, this is a tough one to hear. These are people, and, and you might know some, they've experienced all the goodness of God, everything that God has to offer. It's like they came to the feast, and they saw what was laid before them. They smelt it. They looked at it, and it looked good, and they may have even tasted it. And this feast was laid before them, and in the end, they say, you know what? This is just not enough. I'm going to go get a Big Mac at McDonald's instead. That, that's kind of what it's like, because Jesus is calling us to this feast, and hopefully there's none among us this morning or in the first service that this passage is talking about. But some people come to the feast, and they stay for a while, and they experience this stuff. But eventually, along the way somewhere, it gets tough, or it gets boring, or it's not enough, and they decide, you know what, I'm going to move on to something else. It just was a phase. Jesus, though, he's not calling us just to come to the feast. He's calling us to feast. And for the people um, that Jesus was around, that's a tough teaching. John chapter 6 says this, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Things got weird. Here's this guy, Jesus. Probably the largest crowd in his ministry after feeding 5,000. And then he gives this difficult, hard-to-understand teaching. If you look at the pattern of Jesus... That some of his toughest, most challenging teachings came when he had the largest crowd. Because he wanted to say, okay, why are you following me? What is this really all about? And so he would just drop difficult, sometimes cryptic truth on them, and it would filter out. And then there were some left, and they would continue to go on. That's the opposite of what I see in our culture. What you see in our culture is the larger the crowd, the more you try to bring it down. Say, so I don't want to offend. I got a variety here. People are coming in. Jesus, if he wrote a book on church growth, um, I don't think anybody would buy it. At the end of his ministry, he had just a few people in front of him. One disciple was there at the cross. But he's calling us to come and to feast, to consume. He's saying it's not enough for me to be out here. It's not enough for the influences of the Christian world. I want to be consumed. I need to be in here. I need to infiltrate. I need to go throughout. That's what he's calling to. And when that happens, it can become difficult. So immediately, this large crowd went to a small crowd. He turned to the other disciples and said, are you going to leave me too? And they said, who else has the words of eternal life? We will not leave you. And they moved on. He didn't go running after those people. He focused on the people that were continuing on. So this first section here, it's the people that experienced all the goodness of God, but didn't want to go all the way. 
It went too far, so they walked away. It felt good for a while, but it wasn't what they were looking for. Thankfully, the audience in Hebrews is not that crowd. So we go on to verse 9, and the writer says this. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, and then he uses a term of endearment, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have full hope of assurance until the end. So this group here, they were bearing fruit. There was evidence of the work of the Spirit in their life. The spiritual gifts were coming alive. But there was something that was somewhat amiss. So yeah, they had some of the fruit of the Spirit. There was evidence of salvation, yet the author rebukes them and said, you know, you show some evidence, but you're dull, you're sluggish, you're milk-drinking Christians. They weren't as they should be. They had a fire at one point, but something happened along the way. And this is the part of the passage that convicted me most. Because I became a believer. Some of you might not remember when you put your faith in Christ. Because maybe you grew up in the church. But I remember clearly June 28th, 2001. My parents who were sitting right here and my siblings, I remember them being a little worried that I went over the deep end. Because all of a sudden, I, I bought a Bible at, I don't know if the mustard seed's still around, but I bought this little pocket Bible. And uh, since I was the one that bought it, in the front I put, to Mike Morby from God. Because uh, it was like, and, and I put the, it was June 29th, 2001 that I bought that Bible, the next day. And that Bible was small enough to fit. I wear skinny jeans now, so I can't fit a Bible in my pocket. But in those days, when I didn't know baggy jeans weren't cool, I, had, uh, I would fit it in my, my pocket. And I was a college student at the time. Everywhere I went, I carried this Bible. My roommate wasn't a Christian, and so often I would sit in the hallway, and I would just read the Bible, saturated. No joke, I probably read the Bible for about one to two hours a day just sitting there. And then I would carry it, and I would always, you know, people must have thought I was such a wacko. I was the guy, I was that guy in the Old Testament, zeal without knowledge. You know, that's, you know, that new Christian, and they just, they know nothing, but they're just so excited. They're like, you just gotta believe. Believe in what? I don't know the scripture yet, just believe. That was me. Um, But I would, I would have it in my pocket, and everywhere I go, it was my sword. You know, I would just, I was, I was one of those guys. But the fire was just unbelievable. And I would, I would talk with people that had so much more knowledge of philosophy and great at reasoning and arguing and debating, and I didn't care. I would still talk with them, and I would get shot down. But, you know, I'd say, okay, that, that wasn't supposed to be what it was. I'd go on to the next person. But then somewhere along the way, that fire started to dwindle. The honeymoon started to kind of fade a little bit. Same is true here with these Hebrew Christians. Somewhere along the way, something happened to their fire. And they became dull, and they just started going through the motions. They had the head knowledge, but there wasn't an outpouring of it. And I think the reason is because, yeah, that honeymoon is great, But then things start to get difficult. You start to see the difficult parts of Christianity and following Jesus. John chapter 15 says, The world hated me, so they're going to hate you. That's tough to swallow. 
to think if I follow after Christ with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength, I may be hated because the world hated him. And if I follow him, they're going to hate me at times. That's tough. Philippians 1 says, you're not only called to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for him. That's not something that we preach on or hear often. But at times, following Jesus causes sufferings. And then this one, which we're all familiar with, 1 Peter 1, says that our faith will be refined by fire so that it will be proved genuine. James 1 as well says we'll face trials of many kinds. It gets difficult at some point. And some of the people, that first part that I talk about, say, okay, this was all great. But then this, this suffering part, this hatred part, this rejection part, this trial by fire part, this refining part, yeah, I want that but not this. And they walked away and they said, you know what? The world has so much more to offer than this Christian thing. This is not what I signed up for. And they walk away and openly reject Christ and say, those people are nuts. They drew me in with, with something and what ended up being true was something different when it comes to following Christ. And then there's these Hebrew Christians that as they start to walk in their faith, they realize, wow, this is difficult. And they became dull and sluggish and milk drinking, coming back to the basics over and over and over again. I believe the Hebrew Christians had a doctrine of Jesus Christ, yet their hope was not in him. So they had a faith in the promises of God. Saying, yeah, I read scripture, I adhere to scripture, I believe that it's true, I believe that it was inspired by God. So they believe it, but their hope is not in Jesus. That he will actually follow through on his promises. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand or not or anything like that, but how many of you are with me in that? I read the scripture and I say it's for the other guy. But that hope set out in Scripture, is for every single one of us. But it's difficult. It takes patience. Faith is the belief in the promises of God. Hope sustains us along the way. Romans 8.24 says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope is assurance in things unseen. Hope requires patience. It sustains us along the journey. When God is not there, hope is what keeps us going. When we pray and we don't see an answer, when we read the promises of God, but we don't see them fulfilled, when he seems so far away, when we're trying to fix our eyes on Jesus and these things to our left and to our right are saying, I can satisfy today, it gets difficult. He gives the example of Abraham God promised a son, yet it took 25 years after that for Isaac to be born. I can't even wait 25 hours for something. Yet God said, I will do this 25 years later. It happened. That's difficult. That's why it calls us to endurance, to earnestness. The NIV uses um, diligence as the word. Because what we see is we see a hope set before us, but it's far off. And we live in an in-demand culture saying, I can give it to you today. 
You want something today to satisfy your longing? Stop looking out there. God's not going to come through. I'm going to give it to you right now. And we stumble, we fall. Hebrews talks about the sin that so easily entangles. It's so easy. Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because this stuff over here is tempting. And it's giving us false promises and false hope. But it's truly no hope at all. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. It's like that woman coming to the well every single day to draw water. Every single day. And that's what the world does. It says, draw, and we're satisfied for a moment, but we wake up the same or maybe worse the next day. So we come back to the well, and we draw again. And then it satisfies for a moment, but we wake up the next day, and we're feeling the same. We're trying to dull the pain, whatever it may be. We're trying to just get through. But Jesus is saying, no, fix your eyes on me. You might not get it today, but endure because I am the hope set out before you. And so he comes to that woman at the well and says, I will give you living water. You'll never have to come back here and draw again. I will give you living water. And that's what he's promising us. Hope sustains us along the journey. And that hope, is Christ. Hebrews 6.19 says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He is an anchor that's sure and steadfast. He is true hope. Now, if you think about it, an anchor is used for a boat or a ship. And the anchor is something that you have outside of the ship keeping you steady. So we're in this boat and we're going along and the waters are raging and the storm is coming and it's difficult and we're doing everything we can to try to keep this boat steady. But our own strength is insufficient. And so Jesus is saying, no, I'm your anchor. Yeah, you can't see it. And it's something outside of you. But if you keep trying to depend on what's inside of you and your own strength, you're going to keep coming up empty. I'm the anchor, the sure and steadfast anchor to your soul. Come to me. And then it goes on to say that he's the hope that enters behind the curtain, forerunner and high priest. He has marked this path out for us. Ephesians talk about that there are good works marked out in advance for us to do. He has gone before. We can trust the path, even though we might not be able to see the destination, we can trust the path that he's bringing us on. He is the hope. As much as I try to read my Bible, as much as I try to pray, as much as I try to muster up my own strength, It's insufficient because I'm putting my hope in what I can do, not in him. I can't put my hope in this church. I can't put my hope in Josh. I can't put my hope in Tim. I can't put my hope in the elders. I can't put my hope in my wife. I can't put my hope in my parents. I can't put my hope in my job or my property or my retirement or my health. I can't put my hope in myself 
and my mind and my reasoning. I can't put my hope in my friends. I can't put my hope in things and stuff that the culture wants to throw at me. All of that stuff is just going to fade away. It's fake. It's false. Jesus is saying, put your hope in me. All of that other stuff is shifting sand. I am the only thing. I'm steady. I'm secure. I'll be there. As you're going through the trials of life, I will be there. We have a five-year-old, almost, a three-year-old, and a one-month-old. And it's hard. The five-year-old and the three-year-old are fighting over a toy. The dinner is burning. The baby is crying. Somebody's coming to visit the baby. And we're like, we got to clean the house. You know, have you ever seen that triangle? Parenting, sanity, clean house, happy kids. Pick two. (laughs) Um, I don't know if we have any of them right now. Maybe happy kids once in a while. But it's hard. And I tend to look at like what's going on over the Middle East or these Christians that are just suffering and it's so difficult. And I look at my circumstance and I beat myself up and I say, there are Christians laying down their lives for the gospel and here I am getting all worked up over a crying baby and I beat myself down. But God is saying, you know what? I know the numbers of the hairs on your head, although they are few. I care for the sparrow. I've clothed the grass with flowers. I care for even your smallest, what you think are most insignificant concerns. Put your hope in me. Because it's so tempting right now for Carrie and I to just check out, jump on Instagram, jump on Facebook, put the kids in the basement and say, go play down there. Put the baby up in the nursery and turn off the monitor just so we think she's not crying. It's so tempting to check out adoption websites and say, let's just get rid of like one or two and then we'll be fine. It's so hard to have patience to speak kindly when just the world, and I know, I I think to myself, so much crazier things are happening in the lives of people. Why am I getting worked up? Why is Carrie getting worked up? Why is this happening? But our problems, big or small, are significant to God. And it's so hard because I just want to sometimes, you know, just just yell or, you know, run away or just hide or, or get away or, you know, put the kids off, whatever it may be. But God is saying, you know, that, that is not hope. You need to, today, put your hope in me. Love your kids. Love your wife. Be patient. Speak into them. Pray for them. Pray with them. Remind them of Scripture. Remind yourself of the promises of God. Every single moment, he is strong. I am weak. It's a daily, moment-by-moment effort to say, God, right now, it's crazy, but I know that there's a hope and there's a future for me, for my wife, for my kids, for this church, and we just patiently endure and say, God, we're going to look at your promises, and we're not going to just make a mental ascent. We're going to put our hope in them, and no matter what the situation, when we're in the storms of life, you're going to be our sure and steadfast anchor, and we're going to continue to love, continue to care, continue to speak words that build up. That's putting our hope in Christ. 
and not in ourselves and not in our circumstances. Because my, my prayer is that my kids won't look back and say, man, mommy and daddy yelled a lot. <laughs> we see Abby going, Oliver, stop it. And then we go, Abigail, stop yelling. And we're like, wait, we just did the same exact tone and voice. And ah. My hope is that they'll say, you know what? No matter how crazy we got, our parents were steady and they loved us. But I can't muster that up on my own. I can only do it if I have Christ. That's the only way. And the Bible says it. In our weakness, he is strong. I came into the sermon feeling super weak. And usually that's when God shows up. And he showed up first service. And so I came into the second service a little confident. And my prayer as I'm back there is confidence is even weaker than the weakness I felt before. God, I'm going to need you extra big now because I have some confidence And when you start having confidence in yourself, it's the ultimate form of weakness, if that makes sense. (laughs) He is our strength. He is our anchor. He is our forerunner. We cannot give up. We need to continue to fix our eyes and say, this stuff may satisfy today, but he will satisfy forever. Endurance until the end. It's difficult. It's challenging. But it says at the end that we'll receive that crown of life. Let's pray. Lord, it's easier said than done. You're the hope. You're the hope of the world. Lord, but when we read about hope in the scripture, words that are coupled with it are words like patience, endurance, long-suffering, steadfastness. You work a lot differently than we do. You work a lot differently than the world does. And Lord, we all, even probably this morning, have put our hope in things that are false. Lord, but what we start to find as we walk along this journey, Lord, is that the world's yoke is heavy and the world's yoke is burdensome. Lord, but you say that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. It may seem difficult, Lord, and and it's hard to trust in things unseen. Lord, but give us that hope. Give us that hope that Abraham had waiting 25 years for Isaac. We don't know what it looked like, and we know that he messed up along the way. Lord, but he continued on, even in his weakness and failure. Lord, and I pray that we will do the same, that we will not be a sluggish and dull and milk-drinking church, Lord, that just settles because it gets difficult. Lord, allow us to keep our eyes focused on you. Give us that strength today to keep our eyes focused on you so that we can patiently endure when the world seems like chaos. I know my situation. I don't know the situations of the people in this room. For some people, it might just be settling into a life of comfort. Lord, that's their difficulty. For others, it may be um, sickness or family or relationships 
Who knows? Lord, but let us not dull the pain with the world. Lord, but patiently endure until the end. Lord, because you have marked out that road before us. And it's difficult, but it's, it's the way to go. Lord, it's the way to life. I thank you for this morning, and I pray that we are blessed by what you wanted to share with us this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen.